All right. So, uh, so Hammer versus Sedway, as I said, a, a very famous case, another one of these cases like Lucy versus Zemer that almost all law students will read in the first year of law school for reasons that, having read the case, you may find somewhat difficult to fathom. Why is this case so famous? <laughs> or it seems like a pretty trivial kind of case. I mean, it's important to the people uh, who are involved here, but it's an old case, right? Uh, and, you know, how, what relevance does this have to modern practice? And yet, it is a case that everyone is familiar with, at least to some, uh, to some degree. Okay, so let's see if we can figure out what's going on in, uh, in Hamer versus Sidway. Uh, and so, uh, let's see, Mr. Watson, how about you? So tell us, what was, what was happening? What's going on in Hamer? Okay, so um, neither Hamer nor Sidway were the original Okay, that's that's the first weird thing about the case, right? In case in case it's not confusing enough, we got to figure out who Hamer and Sidway are. Okay, so who are these people, Hamer and Sidway, if they're not the people who are really involved in the case? So uh, Hamer is an assignee several times over. Okay, an assign. That's correct. So what does that mean, an assignee? Uh, so the person who made the contract and assigned the contract or parts of it to somebody else, meaning essentially. Uh, Letting that person take his place. Right. So it's kind of a transfer of whatever you're entitled to under the contract. You can transfer it to, uh, to someone else. You can transfer part of the contract, which, of course, we've already seen in Lucy. Right, because he transfers, you know, he ma- he makes uh, the brother doesn't make the contract with Zemer, so Lucy makes the contract, and then he gives a half interest to the brother. So that's an assignment. That's another kind of assignment. In this case, there was a complete assignment of whatever rights uh, that the person who made the assignment had um, are given to this other uh, person, uh, and it turns out that assigning contracts is a very important thing in the commercial world. So to go, go back to, uh, let's say, real estate, which we were talking about a minute ago, and mortgages, right? Mortgages, and this is something else that happened in the uh, financial crisis, mortgages get assigned by the original bank that makes the loan. They assign them, and that's one way you get the securitization, because you get all these loans assigned to this big pool, and then they get cut up and uh, sliced and diced into these different pieces and then sold uh, to, uh, to investors. So that all comes about because of assignment. All right, so we have an assignment to this person, Hamer. Okay, so who's the who's Sidway then? Uh, Sidway is um, the testator, testator. Testator. Well, well, we'll call it testator, right? So, oh, I mean, that's actually good that you said or, right? So remember, or we have promisor, promisee, right? You know, so same thing with assignment. So you have assinors and assinees. So the assinor is the person making the assignment. The assinee is the person to whom the assignment is made. So Hamer is actually at the assinee, uh, to use the technical term. All right. So you said testator. All right. So what is a testator? Now, I I wasn't certain, but I I believe that. the original people who entered into the contract were William Story, the older, and then William Story, the second. Right, and they were related how? Uh, father, or uncle and nephew. Uncle and nephew, yeah. So we'll call them uncle and nephew because it's easier because they're, they're, they're both of the same name. Otherwise, it'll be <laughs> Willie the first, Willie the second. <laughs> All right, so uncle and nephew. All right, so we have the uncle, we have the nephew. And what happened to the uncle? The uncle dies. The uncle dies. So what happens when someone dies? Somebody's got to represent the that's right. So someone represents the estate in order to give out the money that is owed to other people, including maybe people who you have contracts with, right? And so, um, so the uh, so the person who does that is in charge of the estate is not actually the testator. The testator is the person who died, and uh, the 
uh, the testate part is you write a will, right? So uh, meaning that if you die, or I mean, you, you may have heard the phrase die in testate, that is without a will, right? And you'll learn about this a little bit in property, and, and uh, that we have a whole course on wills and estates and everything. All right, but uh, so that's the testator, but the executor is the person who's in charge of the estate, and that's Sidwick. Okay, so we have Hamer, who is basically in the position of which one? The, the nephew suing Sidway, who's in the position of the uncle. So even though the dispute is between nephew and uncle, it's between the actual suit is between this uh, Hamer person, the assignee, and the executor of the uncle's estate, Sidway. Okay, so now we got all that cleared away, <laughs> all that sort of preliminary stuff cleared away. So what actually happened in this case? So, so what happened was, was the uncle uh, promised, the uncle writing, promised. promised in writing to the nephew that if he refrained from uh, smoking and uh, gambling and there's a few, you know, doing some bad things. Bad things, yes. <laughs> but smoking and drinking and gambling, okay, all those things, swearing, you know. Then he would, he would the uncle would then give him uh, a sum of money, I think it was $5,000. A lot of money. When he, turned, when he turned 21. When he turned 21. Okay. So the uncle makes his promise to the nephew uh, that, you know, if you, if you don't do all these bad things, I will give you this money. I'll give you $5,000 when you turn 21 on your 21st uh, birthday. Okay. So um, that gives rise to the dispute because the uncle allegedly never pays. And now we have the estate, the uncle having died, and the nephew wants to, or the nephew's assignee, Hamer, wants to collect from the estate, you know, from the uncle's pot of money that the uncle had uh, after the, uh, the uncle died. And the uncle was a relatively rich person, obviously, uh, and so uh, is, uh, this money is worth going after. So we have, uh, we have this lawsuit. Okay, now um, let's kind of connect it up before we get to what the court says, let's connect it up to what we've learned so far. We actually learned some things, right? You, know, uh, you, may, you may not realize. All right, so we learned a few things. So first of all, um, what have we learned? We learned two different rules, or you know, depending on how you count them. We've learned about capacity. Uh, it's a contract. And we've learned about intent, uh, in particular the objective theory of contract. Uh, but that's part of the idea that you, know, you have to have intent uh, to make a contract. All right, so let's start with capacity. Um, do we have a capacity problem here? We had a nephew. When the nephew and the uncle had this interaction at some family get-together, it was a party of some sort, uh, the nephew was less than 21, right? Uh, several years less than 21. So we have someone who was a minor. We learned something about minors, right, and capacity and the like. So uh, here we don't even have an issue of whether the uncle knew that the nephew was a minor or not, right? It's not, you know, the bearded 14-year-old that you have no idea who it is, right? So the uncle obviously knows how old the, the nephew is, so there's no question about that. So what about that? Is that a problem? Uh, I think it just means that the, nep- the contract was voidable by the nephew. Oh, he's learned something. You see? Okay, yes, right. So it is void. So if the nephew didn't want to go through with it, right, the nephew could get out of it. But um, if the nephew wants to enforce it, or the nephew's representative wants to enforce it, the nephew can do that. Now, it also turns out that even if there was some kind of issue with the nephew, uh, once you turn 21, once you become an adult, 
you can ratify a contract even if, it's, uh, uh, if it was originally unenforceable. Uh, and so that's another way you could justify it. But, uh, but yes, yeah, so it's the nephew who is, or the nephew's assignee who's trying to enforce it, so we don't really have a capacity issue. Okay, so, uh, so that's one thing. Good. All right, so we learned that. All right, now, um, we also talked a little bit about assent. All right, so do we have a question of assent here? Is there a problem? So uh, let's start with the uncle. Did the uncle, now that we know how to use the words, did he manifest an intent to contract with the nephew? He, he put it in writing and he, and he signed it. I'm not sure there's a writing. Oh, I thought maybe I'm mixing it up with the Antilly one. Uh, yeah. I think, I think I am. Yeah. All right, so he, but he at least said something. He said it. Yeah. He said it, okay. He said he would do it. He, he actually made the promise. So he manifested an intent uh, that if you stop sm- don't smoke and drink uh, you know, for, for some period of time, I will pay you this money. All right, so he manifested an intent. Okay, what about the nephew? Did the nephew manifest an intent? Um, I'm not sure if the nephew explicitly promised to follow through on the expectation. So All right. The uncle, but he, he manifested the intent by... So I'm not sure if this would qualify, but in the form of actually abiding by the uncle's wishes over the intervening years. Okay. Yeah, well, I think it does, right? Doesn't it? Right? And so one of the ways you can manifest intent is by your actions, right? You can do it by your words, by making an explicit promise, or you can do it by your actions, or in some cases by your inactions, which is what's going on in this uh, case, the, the refraining from smoking and drinking and the, uh, and the like. So it could be either one, right? Now it turns out the nephew actually, at least according to one, you know, the, the way the court states the fact here, it says uh, there's an allegation that the nephew actually did say he agreed, right? So he did seem to say something, but he also acted in such a way that the uncle wanted. Now it turns out, and if you, if you looked at the notes after the case, it turns out that those are actually two different kinds of contracts. Uh, do you remember what the kinds are? No, okay, so someone, yeah. Unilateral versus bilateral. Okay, so do you have any idea what that means? So I think unilateral is, um, you know, one person makes a promise um, of a, service or reward and then the other person you know doesn't have to accept it right there but can you know later on perform what what was asked and Right. Okay. So, so one person can make a promise, and, and the reward is kind of the classic example, as, as the casebook authors mentioned. Right. I promise to pay $100 to you if you find my lost cat. Right. And uh, if you find the lost cat, then you're entitled to the $100, right? So it's unilateral in the sense that only one person is making a promise, the person who's promising the $100, whereas a, in a bilateral contract, we have two people making promises. And the key difference between them is what? In the unilateral contract, if I say I promise to pay $100 if you find my lost cat, what happens if you don't find my lost cat? Nothing. Nothing. Right. There's no consequence. However, if I promise to pay you $100 and you promise to find my lost cat and you don't find it, then you may have breached the contract. Right. So it makes a difference in some cases, uh, d- depending on what's going on, whether it's unilateral or bilateral, not only because there's one or more uh, promises, but because in a unilateral contract, you don't actually have to perform. 
It's just that you're not going to be entitled to pay, be paid unless you do perform. All right, so that's unilateral versus, uh, versus bilateral. It also, the fact that they, there is this idea of unilateral contracts may help explain why the definition, to go back to section one of the restatement, the definition of contracts, why is it defined in terms of a promise that's enforceable as opposed to an agreement? So one reason may be, if you have a unilateral contract, what you have is an enforceable promise. The promise becomes enforceable when the other person, let's say, finds the lost cat, uh, as opposed to an agreement where both parties are making a commitment up front and there can be consequences if either one doesn't perform. All right, so that's unilateral versus bilateral. Okay, so that's mutual assent. So we have, arguably, pretty, oh, I would say pretty, pretty strong evidence of assent by the uncle. He's made the promise, assent by the nephew. He's done what he was supposed to do. So are we done, right? Is that enough to have a contract? Consideration. Consideration. Oh, yes. Consideration. Uh, the bane of every first year student's existence. What the heck is this? All right. But the first thing to note is this is pretty weird. All right. So now we have this idea. We have two people who want to make a contract. They want to, I mean, they've done what they agreed to do. They fully assented. There's no joking. There's no drink drinking going on here. There's no bluffing and daring or any of that stuff. They want to make a contract. And the court is saying, not enough. Not enough that you people want to make a contract, that you want to have an enforceable deal. There's some other requirement. Consideration. Well, what the heck is that all about? All right, so, I mean, this is great. Uh, we're, we were in law school a week, right? You know, you can now call your parents tonight and tell them, all right, here's what I learned in contracts so far. Uh, my first case, we learned that, you know, courts sometimes enforce contracts that people don't want to make. In the second case I read, I learned that courts don't enforce promises that people do want to make. <laughs> right? What a great system we live in. Right? This, is, this is contract so far. This is what I want. All right, so we have this thing where people, the courts um, will sometimes not enforce promises even though the people intended to make them because of something called consideration. All right, so that's what this case is about, that there's this other requirement. And here, if you took a look at section 17 of the restatement, it actually says this. There's two requirements. There's two things you need in order to have a contract, despite my simplified standing on one leg rule that courts enforce uh, voluntarily agreed upon uh, agreements and uh, lawful and voluntary agreements uh, according to the mutual intentions of the parties. That apparently is not enough. You need something else, right? According to the restatement, you need a manifestation of mutual assent, which we have here, and this other thing called a consideration. And that's what we're trying to figure out, and that's what Hamer versus Sidway is, uh, is all about in this, uh, in this case. Okay, so uh, that's what we have here. So now, um, I just before we get to the actual case, I want to talk a little bit about what does this consideration requirement mean? How does it connect, if at all, with the idea of intention? And so uh, one possibility is, all right, what we're talking about here is enforceable promises. So maybe it has something to do with the idea that, uh, look, you, know, you may intend to make a promise, but you're not really thinking about it being enforceable. And so maybe this has something to do with the idea that, well, you need to have an intention to make a promise enforceable before a court will enforce it. It's not enough just to have an intention to make a promise. You have to intend enforceability. Is that what it's about? Uh, that, is that, yeah. Is that what this is all about? I'm trying to figure out, this is going to take us a while to figure out what this is all about, but is, this, is, this is my first stab at it. Is this what it's about? Uh, 
sure. Well, you had a 50-50 chance, right? You know, <laughs> yes or no, right? Let's see, you want to phone a friend here? Let's see if there's any, anyone want to have, anyone have a guess whether, is, is this what it's about? Is, is it a requirement to have an enforceable contract that the parties intend that the promise be legally enforceable? Yeah, Ms. Keach. I don't think so. Right. Okay, you don't think so. You have a source for that, or a well, uh, <laughs> just your your your, your intuition? Just read. Okay, the Zemer case, right? So, how does that support that idea? Well, Zemer is arguing that he didn't internally intend for it; he just manifested a visual. Right, and he certainly, you know, so he he, he doesn't think he intended to make to sell the farm at all, let alone have it be legally enforceable. Right. So here we have a court that's enforcing something where there's no discussion at all that the parties had any clue that this was legal enforceable. I mean, maybe they intended to have it be legally enforceable, maybe they didn't. Uh, but it turns out that this is not a requirement, which is also kind of interesting, and it, it goes with the objective theory of intent. Uh, it's actually mentioned in Section 21 of the restatement that you, there is no need to have an intention to have a, contra a, a promise be legal enforceable. If you act, uh, and it is kind of consistent with Lucy, if you act in such a way that you are manifesting a promise to someone else and the other requirements are satisfied, you don't need any further intent to, uh, to, uh, to be legally bound. Right? Although it does say, and we'll come back to this, that if you sort of manifest an intention not to be bound, that can be relevant. But you don't have to specifically intend, uh, intend or manifest an intention to be legally bound. So it's not about that. So what is it about? Is there any kind of intent to which consideration is relevant? So if it's not about intent to make a promise, it's not about intent to have a promise be legally enforceable, is there another kind of intent that consideration is relevant to? So do you have any sense after reading this case and the notes after this case is about what consideration is supposed to be doing? What is it trying to distinguish? Just as a general matter, before we get into the technical nitty gritty of benefits and detriments and all this kind of uh, nonsense. So what is it trying to do? So Ms. Brown. Yeah. Okay, so a gift, and well, a gift and a promise, a bargain. Okay, so a gift and a bargain, right. So yeah, so the idea seems to be that if you're making a promise of a gift, or what we would call a gratuitous promise, that somehow is not enforceable because it lacks consideration. Whereas if you make a promise that's part of a bargain, that is enforceable because there is consideration. So, so really this is all about how do we distinguish between those two things, right? We have the intention to make a gift for which there's no consideration. Here's a classic example of an intent to make a gift. I promise to pay you $5,000 on your 21st birthday. That is a gratuitous promise. It's a gift. It's a promise to make a gift. And for some reason, which we're, we haven't talked about yet, but we will get to, for some reason, courts have decided that's not enforceable. All right. On the other hand, if the intention is to make a bargain, such as, I promise to pay you $5,000 if you paint my house. That is considered a bargain for which there is consideration and it is enforceable. All right? So intention does matter, at least to this extent. If the parties intended only to have a gift promise be going on, it would not be enforceable. But if their intention is to have a bargain with each other, it is enforceable. And the question then becomes, all right, how do we know the difference? How do we tell the difference between a 
gift promise and a bargain promise. And so that's what the, uh, that's what the case is, uh, is about. Okay, so um, let us then take a look at what Hamer says about this. All right, so we have to make this distinction. So what is the test? What is the rule for consideration here, Mr. Watson? Yeah. So, um, Sidway, or Sidway's castle. Well, let's, let's talk about the uncle and the nephew. I like that. It's easy. I can remember uncle and nephew, right? Okay, so so that, uh, the, the uncle uh, tried to make the test out to be, uh, did the promisor benefit from this contract, or the promise or Correct, yes, yeah, so I want to get to that in a second, but so, but what, what is, I mean, so the, the uncle's lawyer is kind of making use of or, or trying to make an argument from the basic rule that everyone had understood and that the court actually states here. So let's just get the basic rule out on the table and then we can talk about what the uncle is saying about it. Uh, did, do, do, in order for it to be consideration, parties need to derive a benefit? Okay. All right. Well, benefit is it's definitely their benefit is in there somewhere. All right. So you're you're definitely on the right track. Okay. So let's start with that. Say when you said it. So it is one of these words you want to be careful about. You know, it. What is it? <laughs> all right. So when, we, when we're talking about it, what are we talking about? We're talking about. So, so what I meant to say. Yes. Try again. Yep. A contract in order. To have consideration mm-hmm. requires benefits to be conferred. Okay. All right. We're getting closer. All right. So you said a contract it requires benefits to be conferred. All right. So as I said, you know, benefits are in there, and and, and we are talking about uh, contract is one way to put it, but the other way to put it is what? So yeah. Or Help the us. other party could experience detriment. Okay. The other party. All right. So we're still not. Which the, which party? The promisee. Okay. So. In order to have consideration for what do we have consideration? You said contract, which is not exactly right. We're looking at consideration for what? Mm, not exactly. The promise. Whose promise? The promise the uncle is making, to, the promisor is making to the promisee. Right, and the promisor here is the uncle. Right, because the uncle is the one who isn't performing. Remember, promisor, when we use that term, we're using the term even if both parties made promises, which may or may not have been the case here. But we're talking about the person who didn't keep their promise, which in this case is the uncle. Okay, so the uncle is the promisor. So so the question is, is there consideration for the uncle's promise? That's the question. And in order to have consideration for a promise, there are two possible ways to do it. Two possible ways. One is the benefit way. Right? If there is a benefit to whom? Promisor. Or the other way, the one that Mr. Shelton was identifying, detriment to the promisee. So either one, either a benefit to the promisor um, or a detriment to the promisee. And sometimes this is referred to as the benefit detriment test uh, for consideration. You can have a promise be enforceable if there's either a benefit to the promisor, uncle in this case, or a detriment to the promisee, the nephew in this case. All right, so that's some fancy language here. Benefits, detriments, consideration, all this stuff. All right, so um, let's just take the simplest case. Right? We started with the gratuitous promise. So we know that gratuitous promises are not supposed to be enforceable. 
All right, so if the promise is, I promise to pay you $5,000 on your 21st birthday, that is not enforceable. There is no consideration for it. All right, so we have the benefit detriment test. How under the benefit detriment test does that fail? Because the promisor is not making the promise on the condition of any benefit to himself or to the detriment of the promise. Okay, so the promisor is not getting any benefit because the promisor is actually giving away money, right? So they're not getting anything in return for it. And if someone just says, I promise to give you $5,000 without any requirements that you do anything, the person to whom the promise is made is not incurring a detriment, is not doing anything in order to get that money, or at least that's how we might phrase it. And so therefore, that is not enforceable under the doctrine of consideration, under the benefit-detriment test. All right, everyone got that? So far, okay, yeah, I see nodding heads, good. All right, so as compared to the painting situation. All right, so the painting situation is A, I'll use the restatement letters, okay, A and B. All right, so A promises to pay B to paint, um, to pay B to paint A's house, uh, and B paints the house, and then A refuses to pay. Okay, so how does the benefit that, who's the promisor in this case? Very good. All right. So A has promised to pay and is not paying. Okay. And there, there was consideration. Uh, a was to derive the benefit of having her house painted and being fulfilled his end of the bargain. And A, in refusing to fulfill her end of the bargain, uh, subjecting herself to Litigation. Right. It can be enforced. Okay, so, so when you say uh, B fulfilled B's end of the bargain, uh, so in other words, is there a detriment under, if we use the benefit detriment language, what's the, de- the be- yeah, yeah. what's the detriment to B? The detriment to B is B has to spend time painting the house instead of doing something else. Yeah, B did all this work, right? B did all this work and, you know, should be paid because B did this work. So A has gotten the benefit of this house and should pay for it because A got the benefit. At the same time, B has done all this work and should be required to um, be compensated for for the work that B did. All right, so under either the benefit or the detriment side, that situation is enforceable. So we have kind of what we would call the paradigm cases, not enforceable and enforceable. All right, which brings us to Heyman. Okay, so what is the alleged consideration for the uncle's promise in Hamer versus Sidwell. Uh, I suppose the, the pleasure of seeing his nephew not engage in bad behavior, or on the other end, the, the detriment to the nephew of not getting to engage in this bad behavior. Okay, so the, the refraining or the not engaging in the smoking, drinking, swearing, and all that kind of gambling uh, stuff, that is the consideration for the uncle's promise. That is the thing that has to be either a detriment to the nephew, to the promisee, or a benefit to the uncle. And you sort of talked about uh, both of those. Okay, so that's the alleged consideration. So here's a nice little diagram. Right? You like diagrams? Okay, so here we have the uncle, who's the promisor, has made the promise of $5,000 to the nephew, who is the promisee. All right, we all get that. And the consideration, which is running in the other direction, uh, is the no drunk, no drinking, smoking, swearing, and that kind of stuff. All right, that has to be either a detriment, and I put in parentheses here, reliance, 
which is another word, the more kind of modernish word that we use to talk about someone who does something in response to a promise. They rely on it, like in Lucy versus Zemer, Lucy going out and spending the money on a lawyer to check the title and all that kind of stuff. That is a kind of reliance. Uh, but the old-fashioned word for that is detriment. All right, so there's either got to be a detriment uh, to the promisee, the nephew, or some kind of benefit. And here I put in parentheses restitution. We'll talk about that. That restitution is another way of kind of characterizing this idea that, that someone who gets a benefit um, without paying for it, uh, you know, should, should be required to, uh, to pay for the benefit that they've gotten. Uh, that is sometimes referred to as restitution. We'll come back to that as well. All right, so that's the idea. That's the consideration that is alleged in the case, in Hamer versus Sidway. All right, so everyone with us so far? Okay, good. I don't see any people kind of completely, their heads exploding yet. All right, so that's good. All right, so now, um, now we're ready for the, the argument, the good, the good part. So here, what is the lawyer for the uncle, the clever lawyer for the uncle, um, who looks at this benefit detriment test and says, aha, I have a way out of this. And so what is the lawyer's clever argument? The, the, the lawyer says that the nephew, far from suffering a detriment, is better off for not having smoked or drank or smoked swearing for the last three years. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So you got it backwards. The lawyer is saying, you know, it's, it's the, the, the benefit. If you're talking about the benefit side, we have to be talking about a benefit to the promisor. Here, where there's got to be a detriment to the promisee, here you've got it exactly the reverse. There was a benefit to the promisee, and so it doesn't really satisfy the test, right? There is no detriment here to the nephew, to the promisee, but rather a benefit because the nephew became this wonderful person, right? He doesn't smoke, he doesn't drink, he doesn't swear, he doesn't uh, gamble and all this kind of uh, thing. You know, what a great thing for him, you know? Uh, and so how could you possibly call that a detriment? So that's the uncle's argument, to which the court says what? The court says, well, it's a detriment in a legal sense. Uh, oh, I love that, right? <laughs> it's a detriment in a legal sense. Okay, yeah, we're going to talk about that. Uh, so yes, the court says it is a detriment in a legal sense, which is one of these things where you say where you, you don't know what to say. So you say, okay, it's a legal detriment. Okay. Um, anything else? Does it say anything else besides that, that it's a detriment in a legal sense? Any other language? Yeah, Mr. Wyatt. What? He, the nephew restricted his lawful freedom of action, so he could have, but he didn't. And uh, by doing that, he, yeah. Um, he could have what? He could have uh, in, in engaged in this, in this lawful vice, uh, but instead elected not to. Okay. Yeah. So he could have done it legally, but he didn't do it. And so that does count as a detriment. So the court does say that. And I want to talk about that. Anything else that they say? They don't say very much. So it's actually a pretty short opinion. So, yeah. Uh, the court also says that they don't need to speculate how hard it was to do. So if the uncle was to say, well, it was easy, it didn't, you just didn't do it. It was easy. It's not the court's job to say if it was easy or hard. Okay, yeah, so it's not the court. We're not getting into that. We're not going to make these kind of value judgments or judgments about how easy or hard it was for you to do. It was enough that the nephew just followed the instructions and didn't, uh, didn't do it. Yeah. They also said that um, they saw nothing in the record that would permit them to think that the uncle didn't gain any benefit. 
Okay, yeah, so that's what they say, about, right, very good. So that's what they say about the benefit side. So I want to talk about that, but I want to put that to one side for a second and focus on the detriment, because this argument was about the debt, the main argument was about the detriment, and we'll get to the benefit, but the court does say that. So, uh, so all right, so let's, let's take a look at these in a little bit more uh, detail. So the court's analysis is, uh, and I want to start with this one, which is sometimes referred to as the peppercorn theory, or the adequacy of consideration doctrine. And, uh, you know, so this is one thing that, that uh, you referred to, right? So, uh, Courts are not going to ask whether the thing which forms the consideration actually benefits the promisee, which is the argument that the uncle's lawyer is trying to make. We're not going to ask that question. We're not going to get into that discussion. Or is of any substantial value to anyone. We don't care whether what the nephew did was of value, what benefited the nephew or didn't benefit the nephew. We don't care about that, so, which is kind of an interesting idea. right? So... Uh, they also talk about the fact that we don't have to speculate on the effort, and this Mr. Law mentioned this, right? We don't have to speculate on the effort which may have been required to give up the use of the stimulants, right? Drinking and smoking and those, uh, those kinds. We don't have to ask that question. That's sort of off the, uh, the table. All right, so now this is kind of an interesting idea to start with. And do you have a sense? So if we go back to our stories of contracts, remember the two stories. Um, what does this sound like? What is the court's philosophy here, if you want to put it, or ideology, if you want to be a little bit more uh, perhaps pointed about it? What, what, what is reflected, what view of the world is reflected in this idea that we're not going to get into this when we're, when we're thinking about whether or not contracts should be enforceable or promises should be enforceable. We're not going to get into this question of, well, did this person really suffer a detriment or get a benefit uh, in, uh, in any kind of uh, actual sense? We're just not going to get into those. Why not? What are they trying to promote? Yeah, Mr. West. The commitment to the freedom of the contract? Yeah, freedom of contract. In our society, in our economic and political system, we let people do what they want. We give people the freedom to write the contracts that they want, to make the deals that they want. We don't require them. We don't tell them what to do. That's what makes our system so wonderful, right, and and leads to all these great outcomes. And so we're not going to do that here. We're not going to ask those questions because we believe in freedom of contract, right? So that story seems to be reflected uh, in this uh, this idea. Uh, And it also shows up in the restatement as well. If you took a look at section 79, uh, for example, it says if you satisfy the requirement of consideration, we're not going to ask about the equivalence of the values exchange. So go back for a minute to Lucy versus Zemer and specific performance where the court says, well, this was a fair price. Now, we don't care about that. We don't care whether it's a good price, a bad price. We don't care whether things that were exchanged are equivalent in any meaningful sense. We're just not going to get into that kind of discussion because we believe in, uh, in freedom of contract. Here's another statement of a similar kind of thing in the comment to section 79. Right? The parties are free to fix their own valuations. Right? Again, freedom of contract. We let people do what they want to do. There's only one problem with that <laughs> in this context here. Uh, anyone see something of a problem with the idea that we believe in freedom of contract, we let people do what they want to do, which is what is reflected in this adequacy of consideration doctrine? Anyone see a problem with that existing at the same time as the doctrine of consideration? 
Yes, Mr. Watson. It, it precludes people from making a contract without consideration. That's what they want to do. Right. Yeah. The whole idea of consideration is inconsistent with freedom of contract, right? Because consideration, you know, we, we, courts are just deciding on their own that gratuitous promises should not be enforceable, not because people don't want them to be enforceable, right? Because we don't care about whether people intended legal enforceability or not, but because the courts in their infinite wisdom have just decided for one reason or another that gratuitous promises should not be enforceable. Completely inconsistent with freedom of contract, and yet... And yet, here the court is like, oh, we care a lot. And the restatement, we care a lot about freedom of contract. We care so much that we're not going to even ask the question about that. So there's a little bit of a kind of interesting, uh, uh, you know, kind of two contradictory things going on at the same time. We believe in it, but we don't really believe in it, right? Uh, so how do we sort of, uh, how do we sort of, so there's the first problem. I mean, you want to see why, you're, why consideration is so confusing. How do we figure this out? And, you know, very smart people, philosophers, have kind of struggled with this idea. You know, how do we make sense of this idea of consideration uh, given the commitment to freedom of, of contract? How do, we, how do we do it? All right, so we'll come back to that question, but that's, uh, that's where this is coming from. Okay, so, um, so now... Uh, the other thing that the court says, so the, so the first thing the court says is we're not going to get into this question of whether the nephew really got a benefit out of this because that's not our job. You know, that's inconsistent with the idea that parties should be able to do what they want. Um, but the court also gives uh, this other uh, explanation, which is, okay, well, but the nephew was actually giving up something. He did incur a detriment. The detriment was he gave up a legal right. He had a legal right uh, to do the things that he was doing, and he gave that up, uh, and that is enough of a detriment regardless of how much it was valued or whether there was some kind of benefit in some natural sense to the, uh, to the nephew, right? So uh, there, here's the language from the court's opinion. It is sufficient that the nephew restricted his lawful freedom of action within certain prescribed limits upon the faith of the uncle's agreement. So he restricted his lawful freedom of action. That is enough of a detriment to satisfy the detriment side of the benefit-detriment uh, test. Okay, so uh, now the court is not making this up either. The court is relying on prior cases that had held that in some cases, uh, in some situations, if you give up a legal right, that can count as a detriment and can count as consideration for a promise. So, uh, so the question I want to ask here is, all right, where did this come from, this idea that giving up a legal right can create an enforceable contract? So, again, not knowing that much about contracts, um, can we think of a kind of category of contracts where this has to be the case? That is, you make a contract in which you give up some legal right that you have. And, oh, there we go. <laughs> All right. Well, you give up some legal right that you have, and that's enforceable. What are the most common contracts where the whole purpose of them is to give up your legal rights? You have a quick, yeah, Mr. Wilson, you're going to guess. Well, <laughs> employees very often do give up lots of legal rights, and we're going to talk about them. Uh, so, yes, but um, any, other, any other examples? Yeah, Ms. Lapp. Uh, like an apartment housing contract, you can give up the right for like, owning a pet and like, owning certain appliances. Okay, yeah, that's true. So, yeah, in, in lots of those kinds of contracts, like employment or, or landlord-tenant, you are giving up certain kinds of legal rights. But what kind of contract is the whole point of it? is to give up legal rights. So there's lots of other things going on in landlord-tenant or in uh, employment contracts besides giving up legal rights. But what kind of contract, the whole idea of it is to give up your legal rights? Yeah. Uh, liability waiver. Liability waiver. Or suppose you have a lawsuit, right? What's the most common resolution of a lawsuit? Settlement. Settle oh, very good. Yeah, we got some <laughs> procedure. All right, yeah, a settlement. What is a settlement? <laughs> it's a contract. 
It's an agreement, right, between two people. What happens in a settlement agreement? The parties are giving up their legal rights, right? Or, the, you know, one side is giving, uh, the plaintiff, let's say, says, I give up my legal right to, to continue with this lawsuit against you, and in return, you pay me money. That is a settlement. And the whole point of that is you give up your legal rights. So, um, of course, it was the case in the law that if you give up your legal rights to something, that can count as consideration. Otherwise, settlement agreements wouldn't be enforceable, right? And of course, settlement agreements have been enforceable forever, and that's how we that's how we resolve most of the legal. Uh, that's how we resolve most of the legal suits. All right. So, I mean, we're we're pretty much out of time. But let me just leave you with this one question. Uh, so, okay, uh, this is mentioned in the book. Uh, all right. So, you're giving up a legal right. Suppose that it's illegal for the nephew to drink before he's 21, which it may very, very well have been, right? Does that make a difference, right? Uh, the court says, you know, the, the main thing is if you're giving up a legal right to do something, well, suppose you don't have the legal right to do it, right? So is it necessary to, uh, to give up your legal right in order for it to be a detriment and a kind of consideration? And I'll, I'll put on one thing just to finish up this, uh, this slide. The other question is, and we can come back to these tomorrow, uh, the sufficiency question. Right? So what if the uncle promises the nephew that I'll give you $5,000 if you refrain from eating spiders between now and your 21st birthday? Right? Here you do have a legal right, but would that be enforceable? Would that make a promise by the uncle enforceable because the nephew is giving up a legal right to eat spiders? Right? Uh, right? So if you give up that legal right then it's an enforceable promise. All right, so I want to start tomorrow with those two questions, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the other uh, interesting uh, difficulties with the, the court's opinion, and then we will see how the restatement, in its wonderful wisdom, resolves this question and clears up all difficulties with Section 71. All right, so if you haven't read Section 71 in the, in the comments and the illustrations, we will talk about Section 71 tomorrow as well. We won't get past uh, Hamer, but we will try to finish it up uh, tomorrow. All right, see you then.